We're going to be in Revelation 2, starting with verse 12. And as we do Sunday after Sunday, we start with a small snippet of the Proverbs. Uh, We're actually in Proverbs 3, starting with verse 13. They're contiguous to each other Sunday after Sunday. Um, So that's the one we're going to start with today. Proverbs 3, verse 13 through 18. Six verses. He says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who retain her. You see a mathematical equation here. It's wisdom plus understanding yield, length of days, riches, honor, peace, and happiness. Reminds me of Proverbs 3.8, where it says to acknowledge the Lord in all your ways, and he will direct your paths. Does this mean our lives will be perfect? No. But it means that if we live our lives to the manufacturer's specifications, so to speak, right, Uh, If you have a new piece of equipment and you read the directions manual, it'll tell you how to get long life out of that piece of equipment. Well, if we're a piece of equipment, the manufacturer's specifications are right here in this book. And what's interesting is that uh, wisdom is personified as a female. And I love that when we go through the proverb of the day and we go through our New Testament study, how they mesh. The Old and New Testaments are so close and people try to separate them. Uh, What we're going to see, too, is the doctrine of Jezebel later in the New Testament, Revelation, is also the evil is personified as a female. Here, good and wisdom is personified as a female. We're going to see the the differences between those two. But how do we get to this serenity? How do we get to this life of, of being at peace with yourself, being at peace with the Lord, and being at peace with your fellow man? By following the Lord's word. By the fear of the Lord and openness to his word and correction. In the conclusion of Revelation chapter 2 today, we're going to see that the Lord is trying to impart his wisdom to the next two churches, uh, Pergamos and Thyatira. And we're going to see that Jesus really draws out their failures. That's what we're going to see today. A little bit of a hard-hitting message by the Lord. Many resist a look at failures. I mean, who here, raise your hand, would love for me to come after service and take you aside one-on-one and say, you're a failure. Did you know that? (laughs) And this is where you failed. You wouldn't like it, and certainly I wouldn't like it if you said to me, you're a terrible pastor, you're a failure. So nobody likes that. Um, On a national level, maybe it's a a national hubris or um, arrogance or pride, but that's our society. Don't tell me I've done anything wrong. I don't want to hear it. But do you realize that we learn the most from recovering from our failures. I know this is counterintuitive to the world's philosophy, but I'm going to tell you that failure is good at times. You're like, what? That sounds ridiculous. I wouldn't hear that on the Dr. Phil show or the Us magazine or Self, right? But I can tell you as a, as a, as a person, as a pastor, as a Christian, if I have anything to offer you, number one, it's by the glory of God. Anything that I have, I give him credit for. Number two, it's because I've made a lot of failures in my life. And I've tried to overcome and excel from those failures. So if you come to me and tell me you failed in some way, I'm not going to chastise you for it, but I'm going to ask you, what are you going to do to overcome from that failure? So failure is a good thing at times. Now here, 
Speaking to the churches, of course, there's a higher responsibility on anyone in ecclesiastical authority, spiritual authority, church leaders, etc. And the Lord, James 3.1, says that those of us in that, that leadership position in the spiritual application will be held to a higher standard. So we're going to see that the Lord definitely chastises them for their failures, wants them to overcome, but says, if you don't overcome, these are the consequences. Verse, uh, Revelation 2, verse 12. First church here. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the church at Pergamos. Pergamos means marriage or mixed marriage. Some of these words are similar to well-known Greek words at the time or uh, Aramaic words, and they do their best in translating them, but the best we can get out of this is the word means marriage or mixed marriage. This is the church, remember, that came after the Ephesian church or that came after the Smyrna church. So Ephesia, Smyrna, now we're at Pergamos. This was the time period known as 300 to 600 A.D. in history, and this church was known as the Compromising Church. Instead of the church being the bride of Christ or the body, right, where Jesus is the head, this church became married not to Christ but to the pagan world. Okay? Now, what happened historically? I'm going to try not to confuse you. Uh, we're going to go back in history, you know, some 1,700 years and then I'm going to talk about contemporary society and how this church or these churches can fit the different time periods that we live in and were back then. So Smyrna was the church that had persecution and it was purified from it. And now the next stage, if you will, the next phase is the Pergamos church. So what happened historically? If you know your history, in 306 A.D., the emperor Constantine came on the scene. And what he did was he reversed a lot of the cruel and harsh persecutions against the Christians at the hands of the Emperor Diocletian. So Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which was the Edict of Toleration. You can find all this in your history books. I'm not saying anything new here. And what did the church do? The church took a deep breath. Wow, no more persecution. That Constantine, he's a pretty good guy. You know, they were rejoicing. However, there was a problem. The Roman Empire was filled with mostly pagans. Now you're going to make Christianity a state religion? How does that work? Well, to avoid uproar, uh, uh, you know, uproar and revolts and all that kind of stuff, uh, Rome had to make the pagans happy. So he merged the Christian Christianity with the uh, pagan influences, and the church, rather than going back to persecution, accepted it. You know, if you can't beat them, join them. And even today we can see that... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to probably offend a lot of people today. Please take it for what it is. I can't really candy coat what's going on in here. Uh, if you look at even Christmas, the Christmas season, a lot about Christmas was from pagan Rome mixing with Christianity. You've heard it before. The winter solstice, the tree, the giving of gifts, um, you know, the parties. A lot of this stuff was, well, there's some aspects of Christianity in the birth of Christ. Well, let's mix it with paganism so everybody's happy. It became a compromise. Now, if I go to your house during Christmas and I see a wreath on the door, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. My understanding, too, is that the wedding ring is a pagan symbol, but we've kind of Christianized it where it's basically a sign, hey, I'm taken, I'm married, you know, don't bother me. <laughs> so we can see some influences that still are in our society today. So the Pergamos church is any church that's seduced to be joined to the world system. 
Now, an example of this type of church back then, and then we'll come to today. Back then, it was the universal church at the time that joined itself to Rome. Pretty straightforward. Today, it could be a church in communist um, North Korea, where Christianity is, is, is persecuted, or a church in China. And there's varying degrees of this persecution depending on where you go. If you understand communism, communism says that your allegiance has to be to the state not to a god or a resurrected god or any of that stuff. So a lot of these churches in these areas, if they even exist, are told by the government what they can preach. Yeah, you want to talk about love and forgiveness, go ahead. Don't cross the line. Don't talk about Jesus as, as deity. Don't talk about the resurrection. And certainly don't talk about the millennial kingdom because we're communists and we are the millennial kingdom. So these churches compromise. They, they, there's a diluted faith. There's a watered downness because of... They don't want to make waves and have problems. Now, there's a psychological aspect to it. You can justify compromise if you're saying to, myself, to yourself, well, I've got to look out for my family. I have to support them. I need a job. And if I, come, if I am really straightforward with the gospel, it's going to, I'm going to be put in jail. My family's going to starve. So there's a justification process psychologically why these people compromise. Right? So understand that. Jesus describes himself in the first verse as one who has the sharp and two-edged sword. Now, the sword, it's, it's amazing because the symbolism, the images that were used, you need a little bit of Roman history to fully understand what's going on at the time. The sword was a symbol of the Roman proconsul, which meant that the Roman proconsul at, at will was able to execute their civilians. So they feared the Roman proconsul. But Christ's sword is to be feared more than the earthly sword. We talked previously about Hebrews 4, where the word of God is able to, to cut, you know, and to, between joints and marrow and soul and spirit, and reveals the thoughts and intents of the heart. But also Christ's sword, there's a future uh, issue of judgment uh, when he comes back to, to reign as the reigning king. So there's a perspective issue. Yes, the Roman proconsul is scary, but Jesus' sword is, to, is more to be feared. Jesus said while he was on the earth, don't fear the one who can kill the body, and after that, he can do nothing to you. Jesus said, fear the one, revere the one, respect the one, who after he can take the body, can destroy the soul in hell for eternity. Is a perspective issue here. Verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Satan's throne, Satan dwells, they were both put into this one verse. Now, Pergamos was a, well, let me back up for a minute. The good points were, you guys are in a demonic stronghold. I know where you live. I know that Satan is very active in your community. He's underground, he's influencing the people, the culture, etc. And some of you have still held fast to my name and have not denied the cross. Good job. So he wants to really encourage them with their good points. Uh, Pergamos was the center of four major false gods, Zeus, Athene, Dionysus, Asclepius, and the cult of emperor worship. What I found fascinating was, uh, even you see some of the symbolism today, uh, Asclepius was the god of healing, and he had a staff with serpents that wrapped themselves around the staff going up. And if you, if you watch, pull up at a... Uh, a stoplight, look at an ambulance or go to a hospital and look at some of the symbols. The symbol of Asclepius is on most medical establishments. It's the seal of the staff with the, 
uh, snakes, serpents going up it. So you see a lot of it even bringing, bringing through to today. Pagan rituals had to be observed in order to be in order to be part of the Roman guilds, which were like the old unions. Uh, but Antipas apparently refused and was killed for it. We don't know much about Antipas, but we do know that he did the right thing, and because of it, he lost his life. It brings me to my next point, compromise. I keep talking about compromise as a bad thing, but compromise can be a good thing, and you have to know where to separate it. The Bible says, if it's at all possible, be at peace with all men. Uh, that's, so sometimes you may have to compromise. You know, you like, I like blue, you like red. You know, let's kind of meet in the middle and say we both like green. Not a big deal, not harmful. You know, let's agree to disagree or whatever it is. But compromise is wrong when we compromise on the non-negotiable tenets of Christianity, the deity of Christ, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the resurrection, okay? That's when we can't compromise. What's really sad is in 2008 in the United States of America, we have freedom of religion. Any cult can spring up and exist as long as they don't harm other people. But as Christians, we're not even being persecuted. And the American church is filled with compromise. You see it everywhere. Compromise on, on so many facets of life. Verse 14. Jesus says, But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam and taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now to the bad points. The doctrine of Balaam, this is in the Old Testament. Uh, I think I said this before, that to understand, and we were talking with the ushers actually before service, and a lot of good preachers will say to somebody who's a new believer or searching, don't just jump into Revelation. Get yourself, everybody wants to read Revelation. Get yourself a good grasp of the Old Testament and the New Testament because Revelation is, is always going to fire back and pull from the Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets. It's going to pull from the Gospels. Okay, this is the culmination of everything. So we have to kind of go back to the Old Testament to understand who Balaam and Balak are. This is covered in Numbers 22, 23, 24, and 25 in the Torah, in the Old Testament. The basic points were that Balaam started out good. He started out as a prophet of God, but he prostituted himself for King Balak's money. King Balak was a pagan king. He saw the children of Israel being victorious. They were coming his way. He was afraid of them militarily. So he gets Balak, uh, Balaam to come by and he says, listen, I'll give you a lot of money. But just have God curse these people. I don't want to deal with them. Uh, so what does Balaam do? Instead of realizing they're God's people, I serve God. But money kind of got in the way. And it's so sad today, and just a side note, how many ministers of Jesus Christ, or so-called ministers, have prostituted themselves for money. It's all about money. It's all these guys can think about. They're modern-day Balaams. Them, their supporters, hanging out with shady characters, whatever the case may be, just to make a buck. And again, we see that all through Christianity today. But going back to Balaam, the prophet Balaam was unable to curse Israel uh, so, because God hindered him. So Balaam devised another plan. You think that there would be enough. But he was so, all he could see was like if you see in the cartoons and the, the character sees like bags of money and in their eyes you see the dollar signs. This is what Balaam saw. All he could see was cha-ching and, the, and the, you know, the dollar signs in his eyes. So he comes up with a second plan. You know, he's going to outdo God here. I mean, this is really on dangerous ground. The idea is to get the Moabite women to seduce the men of Israel, and they did. There was a feast, there was drunkenness, there was sexual immorality and idol worship. 
They always seem to go together in the scripture. And what happens is if they do it themselves and, and prostitute themselves and, and you know, engage in willful, wanton sin, you know, debauchery, evil, then God's going to look at them. He's going to curse them himself. So instead of uh, Balaam saying to God, please curse them, he went to the children of Israel, got them into a trap, and then God dealt with them because of their disobedience. So it actually was a good plan. It was a wicked plan, but it worked like a charm. And I think what we learn from this is that Satan is often better destroying us from the inside than without. Because, if, again, look at Smyrna. The persecution caused that church to be purified. Jesus had great things to say about the church of Smyrna. But the, a lot of these churches, because of wealth, because of laziness, because of an easy life, these churches imploded from the inside. Right? So that's a good thing to look at. So 24,000 people died in the Old Testament in numbers because of this abomination. 24,000 people because of this, this incident. And this is a similar type of seduction that apparently happened at Pergamos. We're not given great details, but we, you know, we can put the pieces together. There's elements of ministry and money. There was elements of idol worship brought into the church. And there was elements of sexual immorality and spiritual immorality or adultery. And then he talks about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, in the last church, I kind of tabled the Nicolaitans until today. Nicolaitans is a Greek, the word is a Greek transliteration of a composite word that means if we parse it into two parts, it means to conquer over the people or victors over the people. These were the Nicolaitans, religious people. This is a religious system of ecclesiastical hierarchy. There was a great divide now. Instead of the Apostle John saying to his folks you know, in the book of Revelation, hey, I'm your fellow brother. Instead of Peter, in the book of Peter, saying to his fellow workers, hey, I'm a fellow laborer, now all of a sudden you have this system where those who are in ecclesiastical authority are so above the laity that there's a great chasm. There was a, it was pharisaical, it was pretentious, it was a great divide now between those leaders and the people. Big difference. And this is emblematic of any ecclesiastical leadership that exploits the congregates. And apparently, the influence of the Nicolaitans, according to this, was in harmony with the Balaam doctrine. And let me just give you, again, let me take apart that word Balaam. The word Balaam means lord over or destroyer over the people. So the word Balaam and the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans actually had the same meaning in their name, Old Testament and New Testament. So they both had the same kind of ideas going on. They worked in concert. Okay, so there's a situation, uh, ecclesiastical hierarchy, lording over the people and leading them astray into spiritual adultery. And what is that? Keep saying spiritual adultery. That's anything where you take uh, maybe an idol or something in your life or something that is maybe even innocuous or, or neutral and you put it in front of God. Okay, you, you get to the point where you worship it. You put so much of yourself into it that God's kind of jealous. He's a jealous God. You've kind of put God aside for something else that you've put in his place. And it comes in all forms. Idolatry. Verse 16, Jesus says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We're going to see through these next two churches that there's a dichotomy or a bifurcation or a splitting, if you will, of Jesus chastising the leadership He's chastising those who are leading people in astray versus the common person who's in the church that he's trying to get them to either leave the church or to hold fast to his name. So you're going to see a lot of them, her children, those, you. And, and look at the, I guess you'd say the pronouns at that point, the personal uh, pronouns, and see what, see what they say. 
So you know that Jesus is really angry with their behavior and his, his uh, words or almost or his thoughts are, it's me or them. And Jesus said while he was on the earth, if you're not for me, you're against me. And certainly this applies. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So there's three symbols that Christ is offering to who? The overcomers. Are you an overcomer? There's hidden manna for you. There's a white stone. There's a new name. Uh, And these are the things that I offer to the victors. Not the victors over the people, but the victors over the sin and over their, their, their failures and their circumstances. And let me just cover these. Hidden manna. The manna was something, as a matter of fact, the word translated manna is what is it? They were out in the wilderness. They were hungry. This was really a test of faith for the children of Israel. There was nothing to eat. So God rained down this white um, type of flaky stuff that would settle onto the ground, and he would ask them to scoop it up, and they would make like a bread or a sustenance out of it. I don't know what was in it, but God certainly put the proper vitamins and minerals and nutrition and carbohydrates. Whatever it was, it sustained the children of Israel in the wilderness. This is pretty cool. Now, later on, what happened was, if you remember the Ark of the Covenant, that piece of furniture with the cherubim on the top and overlaid with gold, and it was in the holiest part of the temple in God's house, it had a, a removable cover. And there was three things that God wanted in that, um, in that Ark. The first thing was the Ten Commandments. The second thing was Aaron's rod that budded. And the third thing was a, the pot of manna. And that showed that God is the bread of life. It shows that God sustains. And we know in the New Testament that Jesus said he was the bread of life, right? So the hidden manna, or the manna, this was something that God is saying to his people, I want to be your only sustenance. Don't look at the worldly church. Don't look at the pagan society. Don't look at what they have. I want to be your sustenance. Overcome, and you can feast on me, and I will support you here on this earth and all throughout eternity. That's the, um, the point that he was trying to make. The second thing, the white stone. In those days, is if you had a, a judicial process, at the end of the process, they would have a, a black stone and a white stone. And if they took out the white stone, you could take a sigh of relief because that meant you were not guilty. You were justified. You were set free from all of your charges. You were adjudicated. If there was a black stone, which is where we get the term blackballed from in today's society, all these years it still carries through, the black stone meant you were guilty. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to give you a white stone. You're not, you're not guilty. You're justified. My righteousness, I've declared it to you to be an overcomer. And also, the names, you, it, it was sort of like a, a social program, maybe a welfare system. In those days, if you had your name on, written on a stone by the government, you could get certain free food or provisions uh, to, be, to take care of yourself, to sustain you. The third part, or, part, or before we do that, um, so you have the hidden man of the white stone, a lot of food here, a lot of feasting, a lot of sustenance. But Jesus is saying, the marriage supper of the Lamb is the next big event on my uh, my, my heavenly calendar. So whether it be the stone with your name on it or the hidden manna, whatever it was, Jesus is saying there's eternal things waiting for you, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which all believers will feast at in heaven. The third thing, the new name. Well, first off, we know that in the Bible, God changes names of his people in the scripture based on agreements or covenants that he makes. Abraham had his name changed. Uh, Jacob was changed to Israel. Uh, Peter was changed to Kephas in the Greek. And whenever God changed your name, there was something new about you. There was an agreement between you and the Lord. 
Uh, we know that there's the old nature as a non-believer, and we become Christians, we get a new spiritual nature, and we, there's, a, there's a perfection. Once we, the Lord comes for us, we won't sin anymore, and we'll be perfected believers in the kingdom of heaven. And this goes back to the point, actually, in Proverbs. What's the guarantee here that Jesus is guaranteeing us? He's saying that you will fail in your life. You will have failures. But I'm encouraging you, Jesus says. Now, God did this. The Father did this in the Old Testament. He said, if you follow me and you're loyal to me and you love me, it'll go well with you. If you leave me and you follow false gods, it's a conditional statement. Then your life is going to be a mess. It's just, and it's same, isn't it the same, same way with us? And Jesus is saying the same thing here. You have failures in your life. You have sin in your life. If you overcome, if you're victors over these failures, if you are in Christ, right? If you've trusted in his salvation and you trusted that he died for your sins on that cross, then these are the things, you know, the door is open. In the next chapter we see, or next two chapters, the disciple John is, is, there's a door in heaven that opens up and God shows him the throne room of God, the beautiful creatures, it's like the control room. <laughs> and he's looking down at earth and he kind of sees all the things that are happening. It's glorious. So these are the things that God has for us who are overcomers. So again, I'm going to encourage you again with Proverbs and with what Jesus is saying here to those of us who are overcomers. And our lives are hard. You know, with the economy now, there's uh, financial situations. More and more people are coming to me with that. Uh, there's always issues with your kids as they get older and they, they strive for their independence. But you want to, you know, you're praying that they retain their Christian heritage. Um, I mean, marital situations all the time. Whatever it is, there's situations in our lives that uh, can really wear us down. But Jesus encourages us to overcome, and this is what I have available for you when you're an overcomer. So what does a Pergamos church look like? Well, let's talk about historical, and then let's talk about today. There's many churches from the time that Pergamos started up until today that can fit this bill. First, the universal church in the Roman time period, remember, 300 to 600 AD, because of the marriage to the state, it was a diluted faith, and it led into lascivious practices. Well, what was the church back then? The universal church was the Roman Catholic Church. Now, before we go any further, I come from a Roman Catholic background. I was Roman Catholic for 28 years. I've gone to several churches. People that, uh, that I work with, that I love, that are my um, co-workers are Roman Catholic. Some of my family still are. This isn't a Catholic bashing session, but understand that Jesus had some harsh words for that leadership. And I, 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 no matter how I do it, I can't sugarcoat it. I've got to just play it the way it is, all right? Many vestiges of pagan Roman society are still in the Roman Catholic Church, and in Europe, it's even worse. Those people that I know that travel, especially to Italy, I mean, it's just totally different church than what we would see here today. Many practices she still follows are unbiblical. Now, remember what I said of failure. There's plenty to go around. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the Protestant Church and where that fell into uh, problems. And I've already talked about Calvary. Listen, my partisanship is not to a denomination. If Calvary goes south, uh, we're done. We'll change our name to something else. It doesn't matter to me. I don't have any loyalty to anyone except for Jesus Christ himself. There's elements of the Calvary system, which we are a part of, that are problematic. And I've seen some Calvary people who have the attitude that Calvary is the end-all be-all. There's no other good church around except for Calvary Chapel. That's just stupid. It just is. So let's take the emotion out of it. And let's look at this for what it is. Uh, Jesus was saying, if you repent and you do the right thing, it'll be well with you. Right? It's a corrective book. 
Today, a Pergamos church is a church with a veneer of the Christian faith, but because of its marriage with the state, and not to offend society and maybe ecumenism, the church will only have a, a veneer, and there's nothing beneath the surface. I've spoken to you before about uh, Pastor Wombrand, who's gone to be with the Lord. He was a pastor in Romania. After the Nazis left and the communists took over, you know, it went from bad to bad. It was just not good for the Romanians. And the communists came in and said, you will not preach about the deity of Christ. You will not preach about the resurrection. He got all the church leaders together. And a lot of them said, okay, because they didn't want to be persecuted. Wombrand stood up and said, what do you mean, okay? We're ministers of Jesus Christ. Well, for that outburst, he was jailed for 14 years and tortured. Okay, so some churches have a Pergamos element to them where they're married to the state, there's too much compromise, and it's a problem. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things, says the Son of God, whose eyes, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Thyatira was the corrupt church. Who came after 600 A.D.? There was uh, the next phase or era, 600 to 1500 A.D., up to the, Res- uh, the Reformation, was the Papal Church, where the Pope, uh, Universal Bishop, 600 A.D., came on the scene, changed the way the church worked. He became the ultimate authority and had control over the churches in that area. This was the area of the Dark Ages. Why were they dark? Because the Bible was suppressed. If you look up Dark Ages or Middle Ages, you'll find in the computer or history a lot of different reasons for why it's called like that. But I would say, submit to you, that there were Dark Ages because the Bible was suppressed. And people were kept in darkness and people thought the earth was flat, even though the Bible said that the earth was a sphere because they weren't reading their Bibles. So that was a very problematic era for the church. Um, At the time, the church became a very powerful organization which sparked the Reformation. Now... Who was in the Protestant Reformation? Bad people from the outside? Huns? You know, uh, barbarians? No. The people who sparked the Reformation were mostly Catholic clergy that said, enough, it's just become too corrupt. And they got together and they tried very hard to reform their church that they loved very much. It was, I believe it was after the indulgences that Martin Luther saw that he said, what? Rich people are paying to get their sins absolved because they have money? This is wrong. That's not how we we confess our sins. So this sparked the Reformation. Verse 18, Jesus' title again about himself was, I am the Son of God, I am the one with the eyes of the flame of fire, and my feet are like fine brass. We talked about what this means in chapter 1. I think it's easy to figure out he's the Son of God. He's almighty, he's powerful, he's deity. It denotes power, judgment, discernment, and Eyes with the flame of fire. I'm not fooled. I can see everything that's going on, and I don't like it. Jesus was conveying a strong message to the Thyatirans and strong judgment if they didn't repent. Verse 19. Here's the good part. He said, I know your works. Love. Remember the Ephesian church? They didn't have love. They left their first love. Well, this church has love. So there's good points here. Love, uh, service, faith, and your patience. As for your works... The last are more than the first. The good points is works. And most of these church had works. And that goes to show us that works are good, but unless the foundation is in Christ, Jesus doesn't really care about those works. Because pretty much all these churches had works, as as we'll read them. So you have works, and you have love, service, faith, and patience. If this is emblematic of the Catholic Church, 
Catholic people, and I'm sure you know some of them, they're the best volunteers, they're civic-minded, they're second to none when it comes to supporting their church and volunteerism in a lot of different ways. Uh, they're a stalwart against a sinful society. If they see something that's really egregious, be it um, some type of mockery about Christ or God, they're out there and they're, they're picketing. Uh, they're loving people. They're one of the most loving people on the planet. Uh, but again, Jesus is clearly chastising the leadership. Remember, you, them, her, her children. So make the dichotomy between the entrenched leadership and the average person coming to church. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, here are the bad points. Jezebel's leadership. Who was Jezebel? If you read the Old Testament, the book of 1 Kings, she was a bloodthirsty queen. She was a wicked woman, the personification of evil in a female. Um, I don't know about you, but I've lived 41 years and I've never met anyone who said, hey, let me introduce you to my daughter. Her name is Jezebel. So, you know, a lot of names are taken uh, for children, and, but I've never met a Judas and I've never met a Jezebel. So take it for what it is. She was pretty bad. Uh, she led the nation to idolatry. She killed God's true believers. And if you remember Naboth's vineyard, she really wanted his vineyard. And he said, no, I really, it's my vineyard. I don't want you to have it. So she said, fine, we'll kill him. You know, we'll have him be killed. We'll take his vineyard. And today we would know that as eminent domain, right? Okay. Um, at this time, the church, again, go into their archives. I have the Council of Trent, the Catechism, Catholic Encyclopedia, they were, they were responsible for the Inquisitions, the Crusades, amassed wealth and real estate. Um, by their own admission, you look into their archives, it's not something I made up. Slaughtered entire, entire people groups for their heresy. Look up the Valdenses, the Albigenses, the Anabaptists. Uh, Self-admitted hundreds of thousands of people that were killed at the hands of the church. Now, an organization that's supposed to be Christian, that's unconscionable. Hundreds of thousands of people lined up, all slaughtered because of religious issues. Come on. We as Christians believe that there's plenty of cults out there, but our response is not to kill them. <laughs> it's to win them to Christ, right? The church was so idolatrous that it precipitated hordes of the faithful to branch off into the Reformation. Sexual immorality, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has their own terms called anti-popes. If you go into their libraries, they have a list of anti-popes, scores of popes that were wicked men by their own admission. Um, rapes, stealing land, um, just uh, corruption, uh, you know, just the whole, the whole gamut there. And the unbiblical practice of keeping clergy celibate that carries even up to this day. And we know about the situations of molestations in our country. 11,000 cases self-admitted, unconscionable. Verse 21. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she not, did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Strong words from the Lord to a church. This is the judgment on Jezebelian leadership and those that follow that doctrine. In verse 22, the Lord will eventually destroy that doctrine and the followers will be carried through into the great tribulation. 
So that's pretty interesting. Jesus comes for his people. He, he blows the trumpet. He says, come hither. Uh, the faithful Christians will go up. But some of these people in every church, not just that church, in every church across the world, they're going to be those people. When the rapture comes, they're still sitting here, maybe even here. Because, you know what? We can't get to heaven. I, I talked to a pastor's uh, a relative of a, a clergyman, and he said to me, I'm going to go to heaven because my father is a clergy person. It's sad because it's not true. You don't get to heaven because of your parents, because of your spouse, because of your kids. You know, when God is a personal God, you can't kind of huddle with the group and say, you know, they're all going up and you grab hold of them and you're jumping up with them. It doesn't work like that. It's an individual relationship. And that's what we have to understand. God loves us. And that's the beauty. You might say, boy, that's, I'm just going to be alone and the Lord's going to deal with me one-on-one. Yeah, but look at the good side of it. It's a relationship. It's like when you're alone with your spouse or you're alone with your kid. It's that one-on-one relationship. That's what God desires for us. So church is, is a composite. It's a group. But there's also individuals that the Lord deals with. In verse 23, uh, what it also shows is that Thyatira apparently is the longest church age. 900 years or longer, depending on how you calculate uh, 600 to the rapture or 600 to 1500. And there's some discussion on that. It's not a hard and fast rule. Uh, So what it shows is that the Lord is patient and that none would perish. And this is the beauty of long-suffering and patience. It's a fruit of the Spirit. You know, most Christians I talk to struggle with patience. Most Christians I know are good people. They're loving, they're willing to do good works, they're forgiving. You know, us Christians, we have a pretty good track record on a lot of the fruits of the Spirit. But the biggest one that's a a stumbling block to Christians, okay, by and large, of all Christians I've talked to, is patience. Oh, I just don't have patience. And they're so admitted about it. I still struggle with that. But you know what's beautiful? The thing that is, is the worst emblematic in our life, God is the best at God is long-suffering. He's patient. Not only does he give the church time to repent and to clean up their act, but he also gives individuals that time too. You know, I I resisted the Lord many years in my life. I had really good Christian men and women witness to me. And I I liked what I was doing in my life. And the Lord just kept being patient with me, you know, just patient, loving me. And eventually it all came to pass and it all made sense. And I said, you know what, why am I running from him? So this just goes to show you that the Lord is patient with the church and with individuals. Verse 23. Some harsh words uh, for, I don't believe that he's saying, I will kill Jezebel's children. Um, He's speaking about this this symbol, I believe. Um, Jezebel, again, was in the Old Testament. She was the wife of Ahab. This was uh, thousands of years ago. Uh, What he's talking about is those who follow that doctrine. I will kill her children with death. Now, this is the Lord speaking, and some of you may have a hard time with this, but understand how bad it was. God is really furious, according to the scripture, when it's bad enough when we sin as individuals, but if a church leader or, you know, even today, causes his followers to sin and leads them astray, man, I wouldn't want to be them in the time of judgment. So, I will kill her with her children with death, and all the children shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to their works or your works. And, and as a matter of fact, in the, in the New Testament times, in 1 Corinthians, that things were so bad in the 1 Corinthian church that the Apostle Paul said, some of you are weak and some of you, you have died because of your um, handling of the Lord's Supper or because of your sinfulness. So there was a time when in the church, 
People would kind of drop like flies if it was really a bad church. God showed a lot of judgment in those days. But no one's going to escape it. Verse 24 and 25, in the midst of heavy judgment, some words of encouragement. He says to them, But I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many do not have this doctrine and have not known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have until I come. So these are words of encouragement. If you're in the church and you haven't been a part of this wickedness, you're going to escape judgment if you hold fast to Christ and the cross. That's what it all comes down to. He made it simple. So even the simple of us among us can understand Christ and the cross. If I stay with Christ and the cross, I'm going to do okay. Isaiah 6, um, Isaiah came before the Lord and he saw him in all his glory. Fear fell over him. And Isaiah said, you know, the Lord said to himself, he said, who's going to go for us? Who's going to preach this message? And Isaiah said, I'll go, I'll go. And he kind of described his mission. Okay, you're going to go, no one's going to listen to you, but go anyway and tell them, wow, sounds like a great mission. Uh, So he goes, but the Lord says, but remember, there's going to be a remnant. There's always a remnant. In every church, in every country, in every people group, there's always a remnant. In Isaiah 6, there was. Uh, We know that even in Elijah's time, when Queen Jezebel threatened his life, Man, she must have been really one tough cookie because he, he, he defeated the 400 prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. And one woman said, I'm going to get you. And he booked. He was out of there. And the Lord caught, caught up to him and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like the, um, the cartoons when the, the guy's still running and he's holding his forehead and his feet are still moving, right? Whoa, Elijah, take it easy. There's 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal in Israel. Go back there. He talked some sense into him, and Elijah went back. But there's always a remnant, and there's a remnant here too. Even in the worst of situations, there's a remnant. Um, reports come through, uh, through the Middle East of these very oppressive countries, one of them being Iran. No churches are allowed, no synagogues. I believe it's just no churches. But uh, they even block the airwaves, so Christian radio can't get through from other countries. And they're really having a hard time with their youth looking at the Internet because they don't want Christian information coming into their Muslim-dominated countries. But there are tens of thousands of faithful Iranian Christians. Pretty amazing stuff. So no matter the worst regimes, North Korea, there's still a faithful remnant. And that's the, the good news and the message of hope. 26 and 27. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessel shall be broken to pieces. The real power of the nations comes in the millennial kingdom, not in lording it over God's people. Okay? The Thyatiran church was using Jezebelian doctrine um, because they desired power in Satan's playground. But Jesus said when he was on the earth, if you are an ecclesiastical authority, don't lord it over the people. Don't be a Nicolaitan. He says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. When Jesus uses words like hate and kill, you know that there's, and you know what, he doesn't hate people. He said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The Bible says there's a time to kill and there's a time to hate. And the time is to hate sin, to hate the demons that try to influence people. You shouldn't be hating people, but we should hate the sin. We should hate our own sin first and then hate the national sin and, you know, you have to make that separation. I see Christians who get caught up in hating people. And I just say, and of course, they're the ones that the media always catches. These are Christians. Look at them. So I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I hate this type of doctrine. Jesus also said when if he was in front of Pilate, you know, Pilate was wondering why he didn't resist, why he didn't beg for his life. And Pilate said to him, 
My kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight you. <laughs> Don't sweat it. You know, I, w- I was born to, to, for, this, for this end. Uh, so why did the church go away from what Jesus said? The time for power is in the millennial kingdom, and the power wielder is Christ himself. A few lessons we can w- learn from Pergamos and Thyatira. Number one, when any spiritual organization desires all the trappings of the world, only corruption and idolatry can ensue. Uh, they go hand in hand. And two, if we go back to the Ephesian church, they left their first love, which was bad. But the Ephesian church did not tolerate evil, which was good. However, the Lord was angry with them. You can't have one without the other. The Thyatiran church was the opposite. That church had plenty of love, which was good. But they compromised and tolerated all kinds of evil, which was bad. And the Lord was angry with them. Warren Wearsby put it best. I love his pithy statements. He says, unloving, unloving orthodoxy and loving compromise are both hateful to God. In other words, orthodoxy is good, the right way to read the Bible. You know, we know our Bibles, but without love, it's worthless. It's hateful to God. Loving compromise. We're, we're, we're the church of love. We love people. We, uh, you know, we give food out to people. We give money to missionaries. Oh, that's great. But loving compromise is also hateful. We're the church of love, but we allow all kinds of evil into this church. That's not good either. So the good news is, in every even bad church, bad church era, um, bad situation, there's a remnant that straight stay true to the Lord. And these are good warnings to us, especially in our era, when, when we look around, we see a lot of compromise in the American church. We see a lot of... Um, Jezebelian doctrine, we see a lot of Balaam doctrine, we see, um, you know, once we get through all seven churches, we're going to see that the American church, man, there's aspects of all of these uh, churches in the American church. So um, we should look at that and, you know, take a look at ourselves and let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word, we thank you for...